You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, bringing you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we don't have a single guest in the studio. We've got two guests right here in the studio. Here We're going to be talking about... Well, not right here in the studio, since my studio is entirely online. And they're not in this room with me, but they're both on the call here. And we're going to be talking to them about their book, Rediscovering Paul. Who exactly was Paul? What did he do? What difference did he make? Because when, when you talk about Paul, Paul, he's a... Uh, everyone's got an opinion about Paul. Some people think he was just the next best thing to slice bread. Others think he took this wonderful Jesus thing and he turned into something it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> but let's uh, let meet our guest here. First off is... a. Uh, Dr. Rodney Reeves. He's been married over 36 years to Sherry Richardson Reeves, who is a speech and language pathologist for Citizens Memorial Hospital in Bolivar, Missouri. <coughs> they have three children, Andrew, 28, who lives in Kansas City, Missouri, Emma, 24, who lives in Chicago, Illinois, and Grace, 19, who is a first-year student at Barrahaven University in Jackson, Mississippi. Sherry and Dr. Reeves are members of the First Baptist Church in Bolivar, Missouri. In his 16th year at Southwest Baptist University, he's in his 16th year at Southwest Baptist University in Barbara, Missouri, as a Redford professor of biblical studies. He's also serving as dean of the course Redford College of Theology and Ministry, and he teaches courses in New Testament and Greek. He's an SBU alumnus from 1979 and graduated from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, 1982. MDiv and PhD in 1986, and did part of his doctoral study at Oxford University, UK from 85 to 86. And prior to coming to SBU, he served as a senior pastor of Central, Bap- Central Baptist Church, Jonesboro, Arkansas, and associate pastor of New Testament, professor of New Testament at Williams Baptist College, Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. He's written several articles for scholarly journals, textbooks, dictionaries, handbooks, and magazines. In four books, Genuine Faith, How to Follow Jesus, Jesus Today, and Rediscovering Paul, an introduction to his words, letters, and theology with David B. Capes and E. Randolph Richards. Spirituality According to Paul, Imitating the Apostle of Christ, and his newest book, Rediscovering Jesus, an introduction to biblical, religious, and cultural perspectives on Christ, once again with Capes and Richards, was released this summer, and we will be discussing that on the show later on, perhaps next month. And he's currently working on a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, the Story of God Bible Commentary, with Scott McKnight, editor. His hobbies include fishing, camping, golfing, and reading. He says he made a vow to God many years ago to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to minister to the body of Christ. He's tried to keep that promise as a member of a Baptist church, a minister, and a college professor. He studies scripture because he wants to be a committed disciple of Jesus. He teaches biblical studies in an effort to serve the needs of the church. He's part of the academic community at SBU in hopes of advancing the kingdom of God, trying to encourage each other to fulfill Jesus' commandment, 
Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourselves. And he sees his work there as part of the whole kingdom enterprise of teaching students to be servants of Christ for a world that needs him. Whew, that's a mouthful. Welcome to the, welcome to the show, Dr. Reeves. Well, thank you, Nick. I'm glad to be here. And you're a friend on the show and fellow co-author. He's been on the show before, Dr. Randy Richards. He loves training students for ministry, both domestically and internationally. He's been teaching since 1986, originally at the State University in Winnipeg at an Indonesian seminary. Upon returning to the States, Dr. Richards has served at two Christian universities before joining Palm Beach Atlantic University as a dean of a school of ministry in 2006. His wife, Stacia, has joyfully accompanied him from jungles of Indonesia to rice fields in Arkansas to beautiful South Florida. They have two fine sons. Josh, Ph.D. 2012 at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, is a university professor in English. Jacob, with a Ph.D. 2014 College of Minnes Medicine, University of Florida, is a medical researcher. Dr. Richards has authored or co-authored seven books and dozens of articles. Recently, he published Rediscovering Jesus, and with Ren O'Brien, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, which he was on before to talk about. Wonderful book. Reading, writing, and the production and transmission of manuscripts, background of the New Testament, and examination of a context of early Christianity. With a real offer, please stand up. The offer in Greco-Roman letter writing in Come Let Us Reason, USA's in Christian Apologetics, Pauline Prescripts in Greco-Roman Epistolatory Convention in Christian Origins and Classical Culture, Social and Literary Context for New Testament, and a dozen articles in the Baker Illustrated Bible Dictionary. He's just finished another popular book, Paul Behaving Badly, which we will quite likely be discussing next year. And is finishing a little book for new Bible scholars, both with InterVarsity Press and due out in 2016. He is also completing chapters in two of her books and several dictionary articles. He is a popular lecturer, speaker, and preacher, recently in places as diverse as Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, Kathmandu, and Kenya. He was a senior scholar at the IRLBR Summer Summit at Tyndale House in 2013. He regularly conducts missionary training workshops and currently serves as a teaching pastor at Grace Fellowship Church in West Palm Beach. Dr. Richards, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Nick, it's great to be uh, invited back. Thank you. How do you two both find time to be on this show with all that stuff going on? <laughs> we probably should be writing. <laughs> yeah. We're probably behind on some deadline at the moment. Yeah. Oh. I've got a, a couple of ebooks under me right now, and so nowadays I reach a point where someone comes up to me and says, "How's that book you're doing?" It's like, "Which one? The one I'm writing or the one I'm reading?" <laughs> That's yeah. right. Um, Doctor Reeves, you're new here, so let's start with you again. Uh, my audience might not know who you are, so tell us a little bit personally about who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Sure. I well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I was raised in the church. My Christian parents, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I surrendered the ministry when I was 16, heard a definitive call of God on my life, and all I knew at that point is I wanted to preach the gospel. Uh, since then, the Lord has given me all kinds of opportunities to study and to learn with some great men and women in ministry. Um, he's led me into places of, of service as far as pastoring churches, I've uh, also taught in several uh, other colleges, and um, basically, it's it's um, it's quite a joy. I mean, it is a, it is an incredible privilege 
to spend all your time. You talk about, you know, how much, you know, how do we have all the time or what time do we have to do this? I often tell people I work in the same garden every day. Mm-hmm. This is the scriptures, the New Testament. I'm in that garden all the time. And I'm in that garden when it comes to trying to feed my own soul. I'm in that garden when I'm trying to prepare lectures for my students. And of course, I'm in that, you know, turning the soil over and in that garden, learning and trying to grow for the, for the kingdom when it comes to writing and, and especially, of course, um, to follow Jesus. And then, and even he gives me opportunities to speak in churches and conferences. So, you know, you're in this one field and you're trying to be faithful to him. And it's quite a privilege. Sometimes I wake up and think, I can't believe that, uh, you know, I, I get to do this, mm-hmm. not only for a living, but especially for a calling. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, Dr. Richards, you're probably pleased to know, I think I emailed this, but I was talking to my own pastor recently and mentioned misreading scripture with Western eyes and what a great book it is. And he said, okay, you're a second person I know to recommend that book to me. I'm going to go ahead and buy it right now. <laughs> that, uh, that's fun. Thank you. I do remember you telling me that story. That was a, a fun book uh, to write as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let me tell you how I got to know Rodney. Okay. Uh, since we wrote a book together, Rodney and I were seminary buddies. We there knew we each go. other uh, <laughs> way back in nineteen. Uh, you know, uh, when we were in uh, seminary. Nothing we went wrong with your technical equipment there at home, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say how long ago it was. It was a long time ago, though. Now this is AD and not BC, right? Yes. It was AD, barely, I think. So uh, after we graduated, Rodney uh, went to Williams Baptist College to teach, and I went to Indonesia as a missionary. A little distance between those two. A little bit of distance between the two, but we reconnected when uh, Rodney took a pastorate at a large church near the college, creating an opening uh, at that local college that I filled. And so our paths connected again. Uh, kind of indirectly that way. We both were uh, students of Paul, remain uh, students of Paul, and uh, we just decided one day that we ought to try to write a book together. And so uh, when we looked around and realized there were a lot of things about Paul we didn't know, we looked for a third colleague who knew those things, who was also a bit of a seminary buddy. So we brought in David Capes, uh, who's a little bit more on the Pauline theology side, and so the three of us got together to write the book, and uh, we were friends when we started, and we were even better friends when we ended. That's true. Yeah. We needed a we needed a reasonable author among the three. So yeah. That, yeah. that's so why we went for David. Yeah. David's going to be on again on October third. By the way, he was be on next week. We had to push back, but he's going to be on on October third talking about his book, Slow to Judge, and since he's a since he's not here right now, that means you two can talk smack about him during the whole talk. So, uh, yeah, well, well, if we could, we would, but I'm yeah, afraid we can't. That's right. He's he is the uh, he's the gentleman among us. So, well, Doctor Richards, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing as well. Well, uh, Station, I've been married nearly 35 years, and. Uh, we like Rodney. We just want to serve the Lord and wherever He calls us to do whatever He calls us to do. I was very blessed to get to teach at a uh, seminary in remote uh, Indonesia. Uh, when I got there, I realized, wow, these people are doing a terrific job, and so I really felt like my major calling was just to not mess it up. 
And uh, I'm proud to say that I didn't do too much damage while I was there. They taught me a great deal. Some of it's reflected in that book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Uh, when we returned to the States, uh, Rodney did graciously step aside so that I could uh, have a teaching place. And uh, that little college uh, was a fun place to teach. It's just a great little place, and we had a wonderful time. Uh, to show how small the world is, uh, Nick, my son, Josh, who's an English professor, just took a teaching job at Williams Baptist College. He left China, came back, and uh, taught, uh, taught there just 20 years after I did, so it's kind of fun. Uh, when I finished there, I went to a, a sister school, uh, Washita, another great school, and then nearly 10 years ago, Palm Beach Atlantic called me and asked me if I'd consider being the dean of the school of ministry there, and it was it's just such a blessing, great people to work with and great opportunity. Uh, it moved me out of the Bible Belt to an area that's very unchurched, and uh, it's just a great opportunity. So I'm having a wonderful time here. And he's got a great place on the beach, too. That's why when the three of us get together, because we have to get together, obviously, to, to write. And so we, we think to ourselves, do we... Do we come to Bolivar, Missouri, southwest corner of the state? Do we go to Houston, Texas, where David lives? Or do we go to West Palm Beach and we go, we're going to Randy's place? Ah, <laughs> suffering for the Lord, eh? He, he's, it's he, a burden. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. And we, he, he and his wife are so gracious to host us. And we've had good times down there. Yeah. Now, um, Dr. Richards, would you also say your time in Indonesia was something that really opened you up to the on-or-shame perspective that we're going to be talking about quite a bit? It did quite a bit. We uh, we had done some work on it in the past, so we were sensitive to it. One of the things that we had noticed, Nick, was there's just not a lot of material written on it. Mm -hmm. And so when we uh, uh, wrote the book Rediscovering Paul, we talked about it as as best we could from the research and the, uh, the study we had done on it. So it was on on our mind, but in in Indonesia, I got to see it in action. Uh -huh. You know, in several of the languages that we spoke there, you know, I, I would learn that there weren't even words for things that were so important in our culture, like guilt and feeling guilty and uh, those kinds of things. And then they would have multiple words that we would just translate honor. It struck me one day, Nick, uh, we were in a church. It was during the Christmas season and their favorite hymn. I mean, unquestionably their favorite hymn. And we had sung it in dozens of churches over the, the previous weeks. The song just has two words in it, give respect or give honor. It's just give honor. So they're just singing to God and uh, that we should give them honor. And for Station Me, it seemed a little dull, no offense to my Indonesian friends, and it, it seemed a little off base, and yet it was, to them, it just expressed so beautifully the Christmas season. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, let's jump into the book here, and talking about that, we could say that when we're talking about Paul, I, I like how in the book you don't just jump straight into his writings. You start with what kind of world he grew up in. Now, many people who read the Bible, be they Christians or skeptics or anywhere else, will read it and they'll just start thinking that Paul, you know, he lived in the same world we do. I mean, we might have better technology. Paul couldn't drive a car. He couldn't go to a grocery store. Things of that sort. But pretty much Paul's personality and world, it was just pretty much just like ours today, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, there were similarities, weren't there, Randy? I mean, as far as this sense of living in a world that was created by God, especially from a Christian perspective, um, a sense of not only divine presence, but a sense of purpose. Uh, whatever God you worshipped, whether you were the Romans or the Greeks or the Jews, everyone was looking for a sense of purpose in life. Um, family was incredibly important in the first century world. Your identity was embedded in your family. Um, marriage, of course, was crucial. Having children. I mean, uh, and of course, economic um, having economic security was important for their world and developing a trade. And so I, I think there were so many ways in which our world is very similar to Paul's. Right. And and before we talk about the ways in which it, it was very different, it you know, I start by telling my students, Paul lived in the modern world when Abraham entered Egypt. Uh, the pyramids were 500 years old. So Paul lived in a modern world with, with modern transportation. You could go from Egypt to England with one currency, which uh, you couldn't do before, and actually you couldn't do again until maybe the euro. And so you know, we start by r- reminding them that there were a lot of advances, a lot of uh, wonderful things. But then we have to step back and say, but Paul's world was not. Uh, like ours, right. you know, they would he would walk down the streets of a town, and and there would be painted on the wall of the stucco wall there the smiling face of Caesar saying peace and safety, uh, and <laughs> and he knew what that meant, like uh, a billboard. <laughs> that's right, and uh, you know, magic permeated everything. You know, you, you they worried about it. They had gods and goddesses. They had a goddess that governed the burning of bread in the oven. So. Uh, if we make the mistake of taking Paul and and uh, imagining he lives in our world, or rather we just take a modern person and put them in a toga and imagine that that's Paul, we make a serious mistake. And so one of the things that we do at the beginning, Rodney guides us into an introduction into Paul's world. Yeah. Well, one of the big differences, I think, that we make is we assume the cultural standards more like our own. For instance, we come from our modern, western, individualistic standards where it's all about ourselves and what we think. And, you know, we have to build up our self-esteem and feel good about ourselves. And it doesn't matter whatever people think about you, that you know you're special inside. But that wasn't Paul's world at all, was it? No. I mean, scholars have done quite a bit of work in this, applying what's called a sociological model. Mm-hmm. of understanding the first century world, trying to understand Paul's world in Paul's terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has a shared view of things. His worldview was similar to even the Greeks and the Romans as well, you know, as a Jewish man. And that is that your identity is embedded in your social group, your family, your tribe, your ethnicity, even your trade gave you identity. And so, um, and of course, then your religion went along with that. And I was just telling my students this last week, it's it's so different from the way we see our world because we think we are the product of all of our choices. Mm-hmm. When they really believed, all, all, many, many choices were already made for you. Like I would say to my students, you know, how many of you believe you're called to the ministry? And of course, there were several raised their hand. And, and I said, can you imagine in Paul's day, as a Jewish man, you just couldn't decide God's called me to the ministry. The first thing you'd have to ask is, what tribe do I belong to? Yeah, you can't be in the ministry unless you're a Levite, right? So God determined all these things. And so there's a sense in which the world is ordered by 
the, uh, of, of deities, both for the Greeks and Romans as well as the Jews. And you know, he he birthed you into a family of a certain ethnicity. He gave you your father, who was a tent maker. He he gave you your religion. All, all the people believe this, and and your family name was so crucial with regard to your identity. And many students are surprised to learn that Paul, his name was his last name. That was his family name. And you know, people in those days, you would know someone by their family and the honor of that family, not necessarily any individual achievement that you accomplished. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think. Uh, go ahead. Well, uh, Nick, I was uh, I spent the night with some Bedouins during the summer uh, in uh, the Negev in Lower Israel, mm-hmm. and they're very much a uh, a culture that views itself this way. They. When they introduce themselves, they introduce themselves, as Rodney said, with their family. Mm-hmm. Their identity is just completely wrapped in their family. Yeah. In fact, it was the major deciding issue. One of the interesting comments he made, uh, the, the, this Bedouin chief I was speaking with, he said, uh, we are good citizens. We obey the laws of whatever country we're in. But it was very much that you could tell from the way he spoke that country was so low down his priority list. Loyalty was to family and then to clan and then to tribe. And then somewhere down there, you know, because your your clan was in a particular country, it related to country. And so it you know, as Rodney was saying, it it it's it's their orientation, just the way they view the world. They they would think more in we terms rather than I terms. Yeah, we exactly. don't know much about Paul's family in this regard, but we can see some of this showing up in Jesus. We say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Aren't his brothers and sisters there with us? And it wasn't a private matter either. I mean, we act we live in our world today where we value privacy so much everyone knew everyone pretty much back then everything was public right That's yeah it's, in fact it's kind of funny uh, we today in America still use the old Roman naming system with a first name which is your personal name a middle name and a last name a three part name Romans did that but your first name or what we call your given name and then your middle name was your clan name and then your last name was your family name. And so one of the common popular misunderstandings about, about Paul is that he changed changed his name from Saul to Paul, yeah. but he really didn't. Saul was very likely his clan name because he's from the tribe of Benjamin, right. and Saul was the most famous Benjamin. And then, as Rodney said, Paul was his last name. So his first name, his given name, we don't even know. And we would think that would be the first thing you would know about someone because in our culture – uh, someone can know you and know your first name without ever knowing your last name, and yet in Paul's world, we know his family name, and we don't actually even know what his first name was. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why honor was so important, because if you're you're going to promote the honor of your family name, and the more you pr- promote the honor of your family, your identity, therefore it is increased. Mm-hmm. So individualism, where we think the only way I can be significant is if I make my mark in the world that American dream would really be a Mediterranean nightmare because you would be a rebel really trying to say, I'm more important than my family. Mm-hmm. And so think about this, Nick, you brought up about Jesus. You know, his, his the people in Nazareth are trying to bring him back under control because they're saying, hey, we know who you are and you're trying to act like you're something different, something special. Yeah. 
because Jesus made some pretty inflammatory comments when, you know, when his family shows up and tries to kind of retrieve him from the house and he's surrounded with disciples and, and they say, your mom's here. And he goes, who's my mother? Who's my, who's my brother? And, and he points at his disciples. And that, we can, I can't stress enough how revolutionary that idea is. It was really social suicide for him to say things like that mm-hmm. and to basically describe a fictive family mm-hmm. in terms of allegiances to him. And he was convinced that if you were loyal to him, then therefore you were loyal to God. And that is completely upside down in the way the honor culture worked in the first century world. Yeah, and I'm thinking with Paul, since you talk about his last name being what would be seen as the least important name, that he probably went with that one instead because he was saying, right now, the clan I grew up in, it didn't matter. The family I grew up in didn't matter. He looks to Philippians 3 and says, what matters? I'm in Christ. That is all that matters. Oh, he, it's interesting that of all the things he could claim as titles of honor, you know, it, uh, he could claim a student of Gamago, he could claim being a member of a very prominent family in, uh, in Asia Minor, the Paul, the Paulist clan, that sort of thing. But, but when he identifies himself, he says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talked a little bit about his conversion, and even still, that's a difficult term to use. Back then, you know, we, we we too often come at it from our own war perspective. We say, "Well, geez, people change religions all the time here in our world." I mean, you have Christians becoming atheists, you have Muslims becoming Christians. I mean, changing a religion isn't a big deal. But when I'm making a defense of a resurrection, I get a man of more facts, and I get to Paul. You know, talk about what made him change his mind. This is a very big deal. It had to be something huge that would make a devout Jew suddenly become a Christian. Uh, well, before uh, uh, Rodney talks about how significant it was for Paul, what you describe for Americans and maybe Europeaners is not typical for the world. In most of the world, it is extremely significant to change your uh, r- religion. You know, in Indonesia, it required a new ID card. Uh, it, it would determine uh, if you could get into university or not. It could determine what kind of jobs you could get. It would determine who you could marry, all those kinds of things. So it is a very significant social decision, not just a, a personal theological, but it's a very significant social decision in most of the world. Even today, so we're already as as Americans out of step with the rest of the world, and we were certainly out of step with Paul's world, right? Yeah, and and what's interesting is that um, Paul wouldn't have seen it as a different religion. Right. See, he 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 would, you know, we had this idea that he, you know, he he changed religions and he was worshiping one god and now he's worshiping another, and that's why scholars have tripped over that category conversion. Um, when he he very much believed, that's why he brought the relief offering to Jerusalem. That's why he kept in contact with the apostles, the pillars, you know, in Jerusalem. Is because, and and even the way he saw the world is that this is not an Old Testament that we can kind of consult every once in a while. And now we're going to talk about a New Testament, right? Right. He very much saw the story of Israel being fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life, in the life of his Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, and mm-hmm. especially, of course, in the life of his Gentile converts. Mm-hmm. He really believed that this was, if you will, a fulfillment of the religion 
of his of his ancestry. Right. He he thought he believed that he was witnessing the end of the world, all these promises God had made, and that God called Paul's name and said, "Look, I want you to help with this really important task." Because, you know, Isaiah envisions this, the prophets envision this, that when God shows up at that last day, he's going to draw the world to himself. And Gentiles are going to build roads to the desert to get to worship that God in Jerusalem. And Paul, we believe, building on scholarly work that has been done that we've learned from, Paul believed he was a significant piece of that puzzle. So I think he would be surprised to hear us say something about conversion to a different religion when he would have seen it as the fulfillment of all that God had already promised Israel. I like to describe it when I speak, I was raised about a kind of Christianity is the flower that sprouted from the seed of Judaism. That's a good analogy. And I think, sure, and you know, I think for Paul, he would always speak in terms of calling, mm -hmm. but even, even when we use that term as as modern Americans, we misread it because we think in terms of calling, I make a personal decision to do this, so I feel called and therefore I decide this. Paul uses terms that were used for when the military conscripted you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's often translated in English, I was laid hold of by Christ. In other words, I was drafted. You know, I'm I'm minding my own business, doing what I think I need to be doing, and then Christ grabbed me and and uh, put me in this new, uh, gave me this new task. I remember about a yeah, year. Just, Go ahead, Rod, Dr. Reeves. Well, I just, I was just thinking, piggybacking on that idea, is that therefore Paul, you know, too. So he 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 would see himself as a one that Christ is called as a prophet. He describes his prophetic calling, like Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Galatians one, and and so. But there, you know, there were people with even within Jewish Christianity, but especially the Jewish kinsmen that did not affirm the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. They would be the ones that would say, "You're not in our religion anymore." <laughs> you know, so from from their perspective, you know, it's kind of like the way the Essenes basically said, "We're the only true children of Israel," and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, are, you know, they're they're the children of darkness that are going to go into hell in a handbasket on the last day. Mm -hmm. um, different Jewish groups did that to one another, and so the the kinsmen that Paul grieves over in Romans 9 that haven't believed the gospel, they would definitely point their finger at him and say, he's not one of us anymore. He's an, he's an apostate. He has forsaken the, the true religion because he no longer keeps the law like we do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's why conversion is an interesting idea. From their perspective, he was converted. But from his perspective, like Randy said, he was called as a prophet of God. I remember about a year and a half or so ago being at the men's group at our church and we were reading something from Paul and I remember someone saying, boy, it'd be great to have faith like Paul. Now, I agreed with that entirely, but then I said, said you know, if you're going to have a faith like Paul's, you're going to have to realize just how much Christ revolutionized Paul's worldview. It changed everything. And until you realize that, you are not have a faith of Paul, and that's why understanding our Old Testament is so essential, because Paul was soaked in it, and if we do not understand the Old Testament, we will not understand Paul. Uh, I I could not agree more, and uh, and actually, if I could plug this, a great book on this is uh, <laughs> Spirituality in Paul, where, you know, I, you know, Rodney talks about this, that uh, 
and and you know that having faith like Paul includes having the bearing the marks and paying the price. Mm-hmm. Ronnie, th- tell us about that. Well, yeah. So we Paul basically the cross was a revolutionary event for him, and it, for him it wasn't just something that happened to Jesus. This is really interesting to me about Paul, is that he he believed. That the cross was something that you experience apocalyptically, that you experience spiritually, that it is a lens by which you see the whole world. And so for him, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, Nick, when you think about it, right? Because we typically will sing songs about the cross of Jesus as something Jesus did for us. Mm-hmm. But I think Paul would have us sing praise songs about what the cross does to us, mm-hmm. like you were saying, that it changes Everything and that and what the cross does through us. So for Paul, the the cross was an apocalyptic is the fancy word, an apocalyptic mm-hmm. event that continues to impact me in my life. And so Paul said, you know, I'm crucified with Christ, mm-hmm. and he believed that this this cross of Jesus was something he experienced, he participated in, he was united with Christ in this, and therefore through that life-giving power of the cross of Jesus, he then developed a resurrection view of the world. Because you can't have resurrection without a cross. And so for Paul, there's resurrection power in identifying and experiencing the cross of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And it changed everything. It changed the way he saw uh, ethnic diversity, differences. It's, it, it changed the way he read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, it changed, you know, like the way he reads Isaiah. Uh, one of his favorite prophets, it changes the way he sees uh, his purpose in life and therefore the purpose of the church. He, he just he had a revolutionary idea. It's a revolutionary idea that we still have a hard time living, and that is there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, that we are one in Christ. And he really believed that the things that divide us in the world have no place dividing us in the body of Christ. That indeed the church is supposed to picture to the world what the end of the world looks like. You know, one thing I think that draws a lot of people to Paul that's so easy to understand for many of us is that Paul, it, he can seem like a just the facts kind of person a lot of times. But he gives you the clear logical arguments and you can follow the arguments very well. Which is something that makes Paul very appealing to many people who are intellectually bent. Because there are some people who think Paul's just this madman who spoke because he had all these visions and experiences. And he pointed them over and over. I said, no, Paul had those. But he was also a scholar's scholar. He would have been seen as one of the most educated men of his time. Yeah, and the fact, and this is where Randy's work comes in, because Randy's done a lot of work for scholars to help us understand, really, the power of Paul's pen, and and why writing was so crucial to his influence. Mm-hmm. So, Randy, would you talk about that? I mean, his his uh, mm-hmm. the impact he has even today. The fact that and I tell my students, isn't it an amazing thing that he's the major contributor to the New Testament, uh, and and it's because of Paul, the power of his pen. I, I think that uh, Paul and John stand in a unique place in that uh, that you, you can read his letters, and uh, often the argument is simple and straightforward. It gets to the point. You can follow him. But it's also interesting that when you start delving into it, his argument starts 
uh, you start seeing the complexity and the nuance and the way that he weaves scripture together to make a, uh, a carefully uh, nuanced uh, argument. So it, it, it is kind of fun that, uh, like, you know, we'll, we'll tell new believers, read the Gospel of John, it's easy. And yet the Gospel of John is very complex. And, and also, you know, we lead, we often in the West lead someone to the Lord using Romans uh, because for us it's a, it seems a rather straightforward, we call it the Roman road, a very straightforward explanation of the gospel. Yes, but uh, I, I would be afraid to try to write a commentary on the book of Romans because oh, it yes. is so incredibly complex. So, uh, you know, one scholar uh, um, likened those kinds of writings to the ocean where it's shallow enough uh, on the edges that children can play in it and it's deep enough that a ship can sink and be lost in it. Yeah, I think N.T. Wright once said that he started doing some work on Romans about 40 years ago. Yeah, I figured I would be done with it by this time. He says, no, I, I keep going back to that book, and I keep finding more and more things that I've missed. Wow, so true. You know, when we were talking about letter writing, so now that was something that Paul is probably most well-known for of his letters. Now, when I'm with people who aren't Christians, we are talking about the life of Jesus and such, they say, well, geez, if uh, if this was so important, if this was so crucial, why didn't anyone write it down sooner? Now, uh, Dr. Richards, you've written a lot about writing in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any reasons why someone would not write down the gospel of Christ immediately? Why would they wait for decades to do that? Well, uh, first off, we don't have any evidence that they didn't. Um, there may very well have been people who took notes uh, right then or, or went home and wrote down what they heard. Uh, we have uh, hints of early collections of the sayings of Jesus. Uh, if you if you look at the Gospel of Luke, for instance, mm-hmm. well, we know that Luke used Mark and, and, uh, and he used these other sources. But if you look at, say, the parables in Luke and you look at the – the parables that only Luke has. We would call those Lucan parables, mm-hmm. parables that Luke got from somewhere. Well, those parables all have a common theme, a theme of divine reversal, that the first will be last and, and that the uh, least will be greatest. And so Luke clearly had a – he had gotten somewhere a collection of the parables of Jesus arranged by a theme. We have other examples that seem to indicate that uh, – the sayings of Jesus and the stories of Jesus were written down. Luke says many people undertook to write an account of the events that happened among them. But having said that, uh, we're still a written culture. They right. are an oral culture. And so for them, written is okay, but an eyewitness is just so much And so so long as there were eyewitnesses, no one would want to hear something read. They'd want to mm-hmm. listen to an eyewitness. Mm-hmm. And so um, – when eyewitnesses began to die off and get harder to be found, then they started uh, emphasizing more, getting a written account of what was going on. Well, let's look at, at some also, because when we look at this as well, one of the other reasons is that fewer people read in the ancient world. Today, in our modern world, we take it for granted that everyone that we meet can read. Back right. then, that wasn't the case. And no, so, yeah, yeah. It, that's very true. And uh, literacy estimates 
you know, it, it, it's a little hard to guess that, but maybe 10%. Um, and, you know, there'd always be a scribe. Probably every village had a scribe, somebody who could uh, read and even write a little bit. But the average person probably couldn't. It'd be true uh, like what you'd find in a lot of places in the world even today. Now, also, uh, oral tradition, when, if you use that method, it's absolutely free. It doesn't really cost anything. But when you go with letter writing, it costs a lot. I mean, Dr. Richards, you did a whole PhD on letter writing of Paul, I think. How much would it cost to write, say, the Epistle to the Galatians, and why would it cost that much? Well, uh, you know, for us, you know, we paper and pen is just the it's so cheap we 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 don't even think about it we don't even consider it but uh in the ancient world they wrote either on what's called parchment which is a cured animal hide usually that of a cow or a or a goat or a lamb or they made what's called papyrus which was woven out of uh reeds that you find in the Nile River Valley and in uh, North Africa and of course, we think, wow, the reeds would be a whole lot cheaper than the parchment. But actually, uh, no, both of them were fairly expensive. Uh, and so, uh, for little incidental things, uh, people would ride on a piece of broken pottery because, uh, you know, pots were made out of clay. They would break just constantly. In fact, uh, when we dig up ancient houses, the kitchen is easily identifiable because the floor is just littered with with uh, pottery fragments. And so, if someone was, uh, uh, you know, if a slave had come and asked, you know, what date is the party that you're going to be having, they might pick up a pottery fragment and write a little brief invitation on the pottery shard and send it off. They would use that when they would do votes, when they would do little incidental notes. They would also use uh, clay tablets or wax tablets. Um, in antiquity, they would also use um, what we call leaf notebooks, which is actually very, very thinly shaved pieces of wood that they would fold in half, and they could write on it. They would use thin sheets of metal that they would scratch onto. And uh, what is interesting, uh, Nick, uh, most of those fragments won't survive. You know, a leaf... Right. Uh, a wooden leaf notebook or, or parchment mm -hmm. cannot survive in any kind of damp climate at all. It'll just rot. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so we, we can only have something like a, a papyrus sheet or a leaf notebook um, in a remote place like a desert, you know, very, very dry climate. On the other hand, a wax tablet can only survive in something that would stay wet for say 2,000 years continuously. Well, there aren't very many places like that, but like say the bogs of England. So there's very few places where something 2,000 years old like that could survive. And yet in, in both of those places, what we find are thousands mm. of letters and documents. So in the few places that could survive, the desert or the bogs, we find thousands and thousands of these uh, documents. So it's reasonable to conclude that the rest of the world had all these things too, that the ancient world was filled with writings. People wrote and sent things, but it is not the insignificant expense that we think of today. Um, just uh, 
just coming right off the top of my head. I can't remember what I estimated for Galatians, but something like Romans or 1 Corinthians was around $2,000 in today's dollars. Yeah. Because you're having to pay for, right, Randy, you're having to pay for a scribe right. who then had to produce their own materials, which wasn't cheap either, to, to produce the document. Right. So you, you would go down to the marketplace and, you know, go past the, the wine sellers and go past the, the laundry people and go past the soup makers. And finally, you'd get uh, in the market to the people, the scribe section. And you would tell the scribe, I want to send a letter to my mom because I arrived safely on the boat. You know, this would be a sailor drafted by the Roman Navy or something, and he'd want to write home. And so the sailor would say, I mean, the, the scribe would say, okay, um, where does your mom live? You know, and so he'd write all that down. Is there anything else you want to say? He'd say, yeah, you know, I, that I, I got here safely, and would you please send me some of the pickled olives <laughs> that she makes that I like so much? So he'd write all that down, and the sailor would say, I'll be back tomorrow. And so then the scribe would, he'd, he'd have parchment or papyrus in a roll, so he would pull off a sheet of it and cut it. He would scratch lines in it. He would write a letter, and you think, gosh, a letter to your mom ought to be very personal. But in the ancient world, it was very impersonal, even worse than our dear so-and-so, sincerely so-and-so. So he would write a very standardized letter, you know, wishing well and that they're in good health and, and hoping that his mother is in good health and that he arrived in Alexandria on the fourth of the month of whatever and, and please send the pickled olives and, uh, and then the scribe would sign it and then he'd have it ready when the sailor came back the next day. He would hear it read to him, say, yeah, that's, that's right, that's what I want. If he could write at all, even just a couple of actual letters, he would scratch a couple letters at the bottom. Um, often, our equivalent of ERR, which would mean, which was short for the word goodbye, um, he would write that at the bottom. The scribe would fold it up, kind of like we used to fold up paper uh, fans to make a fan, kind of accordion style, mm -hmm. fold it over and put a knot in it, um, and hand it uh, to the sailor. A little letter like that would cost about mm, maybe $90. Which is, you know, not an insurmountable amount for someone, but it's significant. For them in those days, that was yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah, I mean, today, if I went on a, a trip, I could just get, reach my destination, um, open up my iPhone, send out an email, Hi, Mom, made it safely, and that's it. And it doesn't really cost me a thing. And well, I think I'll, uh, I was talking with a student the other day who's uh, engaged... And he's about to move away to start a ministry somewhere, and his fiance will be here for one more semester. And and I told him uh, when I dated my wife, she lived at in a neighboring college, 168 and three quarter miles away. I could afford to call her one day a week. I would call her on Saturday evening. We could talk. I would set a timer. It was about 10 minutes. I can't remember exactly how long. And when the timer went off, I had to stop. And calling her four times a month like that cost me about a hundred or a hundred and fifty dollars a month. Now I can't remember. And they're just stunned. And in my day, I thought, what a bargain! You know, I can actually call her. So you know, we adjust quickly to this stuff. But you will have some hearers, some listeners who are old enough to remember when phone calls were not cheap. Right? Yeah, I'm sure you'll probably get pretty jealous of the fact that when 
my wife and I were dating, and she lived about 200 miles apart. We could call each other every night and talk for hours. Oh, goodness. Um, in Indonesia, we waited eight years for a phone, and when we would call, it would cost $8 a minute. So we didn't talk long. And so that's why, you know, because of the ease of communication for us today, when, when I tell my students, look, when Paul writes these letters, this is not an attempt to reach out and touch someone. It's not like, yeah. you know, I wonder how those Galatians are doing. I think I'll drop them a line. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly intentional, and it was very costly, and it wasn't immediate. It took a long time, right, Randy, for these letters to get from point A to point B. Right. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking about how would I communicate to a group of people that really are under my charge because God's called me to, you know, to preach this gospel and start these churches. In the ancient world, traveling season was in the summertime. It would open up as early as April if you were very brave mm -hmm. to travel and would close as late as October-ish if you were brave to travel. And by brave, I mean you could get caught in a storm and die. So most people restricted their travel to June, July, maybe August. Uh, although most people didn't travel at all anyway. But that's when most of the commerce was moving around the empire. So if Paul's writing a letter during the wintertime, mm -hmm. he knows this letter isn't going to go off for months until there's um, a, a carrier uh, able to, to take off and go. So he would take it through drafts, and uh, you know he'd be sitting around the living room, and, and he'd have sections of it read, and People all around would make comments on it. You know how people are always happy to give their opinion. And it would go <laughs> yeah. through revisions and that sort of thing. So, you know, Paul had a team with him and, uh, and, you know, they'd give their input and thoughts. And although in the end, Paul would be responsible for what was written. But finally, it would be sealed up and sent off. So we have examples like in, uh, from Cicero who, uh, sent letters you know, just a few days away and had slaves who did nothing but carry letters. But he would write a letter and but you wouldn't seal it until it was ready to go. And 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 before he had a chance to send it, he would add a note at the bottom, Oh, since I finished this letter, I just got news that such and such happened and he'd add some more comments about it before he'd seal the letter off and send it away. So Paul's letters were written over over a period of time with drafts and revisions and pondering and thinking and and a common uh, aspect, a common part of their culture, if you were staying in a wealthier person's home, they would have these dinner parties. Traveling philosophers would come, and as part of the dinner entertainment, they would speak or they would read something they had written. And so we think Paul used that um, same culture or custom as a way to share the gospel. He would be uh, staying with someone, Lydia or someone like that. She would invite her friends over. And Paul, as this traveling so-called philosopher, would talk to them about the gospel. And he would no doubt share something he had written. Yeah. I like what Rodney was saying about you don't just reach out and touch someone. Mm -hmm. yes. I, I, I've heard a say that Paul never did something like, Dear Galatians, never to write, just want to check out the new pen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Oh, goodness. Now, now, you were talking about the cost of that would include a scribe, but someone could say, well... Paul could read, Paul could write, so why would he even need a scribe? He could just cut that cost out. Well, uh, we, we, we talk about literacy as reading and writing. In fact, uh, I just read something the other day. It was the first time I even see scholars differentiating between it. But technically, the ability to read 
and the ability to write are different things. Now, we teach them together, but they're actually two different things. So I can uh, – if we just go back you know, a couple of decades, there were people who could read something that was typed but not be able to type themselves. So writing was more like calligraphy, and it was a skill someone had. So someone who could who could read could, in theory, uh, write, but it would be very so. It'd be like right if I I'm right-handed, so it'd be like me writing with my left hand. Well, the reason my handwriting looks so terrible and is so slow with my left hand is not because I'm illiterate. It's because I have no practice writing with my left hand. And in the ancient world, uh, they considered it a a scribe's job to act right. And so there's no indication really that uh, Paul did any real writing on his own. So in Galatians, when he picks up the pen and says, see with what large letters I write, you know, before people would try to say, well, I wonder if that's like, you know, all caps or if he's trying to emphasize something. No, he's just indicating that his handwriting wasn't very good. Most people's handwriting wasn't. Mm-hmm. Now, when we also look at the cost of the letters, Quimbus also tells us that the Christians had to have converted some pretty well-to-do, wealthy people because there was no way Paul could have had the money on his own to write those letters. We, uh, I think as Longenecker did some great work on uh, the how much wealth and poverty was in the, uh, uh, in the churches and in the ancient world. Uh, we don't think Paul converted anyone that would be in the top two tiers of the wealth of his society. But that was like 3% of the culture. Um, but, well, it, it's anachronistic to talk about a middle class. But those who were uh, prosperous craftsmen, those kinds of uh, people, Lydia kinds of folks, uh, we do read about them in the book of Acts. So there were some converts. There would be some people who could... Uh, bear the cost of this. Uh, Paul worked on occasion. He could also uh, pay for the cost. But but it was significant. Uh, Luke mentions that uh, he had a benefactor for the writing of his gospel and Acts, a guy named Theophilus. Mm-hmm. What and there's you, there's even ahead. a possibility that some of Paul's patrons weren't necessarily Christians, mm-hmm. but they were friends, you know. We've got some evidence that some of the patrons that allowed uh, Paul's churches to meet in their larger homes weren't necessarily Christians. Maybe like the, it would be a slave of the patron. And so there's, there is even a chance that Paul had made you know, significant alliances with people who weren't necessarily of the faith. And yet that just goes to show you um, how interconnected everyone was in that world. I'm thinking, uh, in in fact, Nick, if I can interrupt again, uh, we see this a little bit more in the uh, rest of the world. Someone who was wealthy uh, might own multiple houses. You know, when Cicero would travel, he never spent the night in an inn. He would spend the night in one of his houses. And, uh, and so somebody wealthy could own houses scattered around the countryside. And, and uh, Paul could know someone in that family. That person, like a slave, would get permission for Paul to stay in that house. So he might not actually even meet the owner of that house. But in that house could easily be a scribe who's got pen and paper and stuff handy. And so Paul is relying upon the good, uh, the gracious benefaction of that person. And so uh, he gets to use a personal 
scribe of someone who's wealthy if he didn't use one from the marketplace. Yeah, when you were talking about Paul in there with uh, the way that he was in his war and oh, I just lost the train of thought there for a little bit. Um, when he would write, he'd have these letters here, and part of it, the reason we might have a canon is because he could have also been keeping a copy of each of his letters, and maybe that's just the case. So, oh, I spent all this time writing Romans. Unfortunately, it looks like something happened to the messenger all the way. No problem. Got a backup copy right here. Would that be it? Yeah, that would be the case. Well, we know that ancient letter writers kept copies of their letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it would be because the last draft they would have, it would be on um, in some kind of notebook that he had. And then if you're going to send one, I mean, ancients cared about appearance. So if you're going to send a letter, you would want to use higher grade parchment, write it or higher grade papyrus and write it neatly for the dispatched copy. When you sent that off, you would still have the last draft in your notes. Uh, Wealthier folks like Cicero kept collections. Uh, so it was just uh, considered prudent to keep a copy of your, uh, of your work. The, uh, the notebooks and the tablets that they kept copies in were uh, not as expensive as the papyrus that they would send off. So, and the cost of a scribe was one of the least expensive parts of, of sending a letter. And so since letter writing was so expensive, you would certainly want to keep a copy. And, you know, we didn't even – when I mentioned that Romans would cost, say, $2,000, I'm not including the cost of paying someone to travel halfway across the Roman Empire to, uh, to deliver the letter. So there was just a lot of expense involved in it. So we think that Paul would have kept copies of his letters like everyone else did. Um, you know, places where we find homes, we find copies of letters in the ruins, uh, letters that they, copies of a letter that they had sent the original off somewhere else. You know, something also with Romans is interesting about person delivered it. Person who delivered Romans looks like was a woman, in fact, mm. a female deaconess. And not only did someone have to deliver the letter. They would quite likely have to be trained in Paul's theology and his understanding because they would be reading the letter as well. I mean, after we read it, it'd be, hey, we got some questions here about this letter. Can you answer these for us? Is that accurate? It, it's, it was expected that the letter carrier would bring along extra information, that sort of thing, bring along gossip. That was pretty uh, common. And so uh, letter writers would uh, – letter carriers would often have um, you know, extra information. Sometimes they would have information that the writer didn't want to put in writing, like secret information. So in the political world, we, we find letters where the author said, and the carrier of this letter will tell you also about so-and-so. So they're letting you know there's additional information going, but I don't want to put it in writing. Uh, now, uh, when Paul's in prison, the letter carrier would no doubt say, hey, Paul's in prison. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of my chains, he, he says, and I told Tychicus to tell you that so that they would know it wasn't gossip. You know, Tychicus wasn't spilling the beans on Paul that, hey, Paul's in jail. Mm-hmm. Then Paul wants to say, no, I want Tychicus to tell you that I'm in jail because I am not a, 
I'm not ashamed of that because it's for the gospel. So it would be expected that the carrier would read. Early on, we think that Paul sent letters with just somebody who was going along. Uh, that's the normal way you sent letters. It wasn't quite as reliable. And whoever brought the letter may or may not know what was going on. So early in some of Paul's earlier letters, he has to correct misunderstandings. He tells the Corinthians, uh, when I told you not to associate with it, with someone who's immoral, I didn't mean people in the world. Well, that's the simple kind of explanation that any informed letter carrier could have could have explained. So we thought whoever brought that letter obviously had no idea what Paul meant. We think it was those kinds of things that caused Paul later in his ministry to want to send a carrier himself, someone who knew him, who knew what he meant, knew what he wanted, so that carrier would be a source of information and, and may very well have been the reader, what they call a lector, the reader of the letter, the one who would read it aloud to people. And speaking of Phoebe, Nick, that you mentioned with Romans, I mean, some scholars think that Phoebe uh, was Paul's kind of uh, emissary to help uh, basically um, to derive some support from the Romans for his mission to Spain. Mm -hmm. And so she was perhaps a patroness, and perhaps that she took a letter along also to help try to organize some mission support for Paul because he wanted to take the gospel uh, further west. And, you know, Randy mentioned that also. I want to throw this in. You know, Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you know, of my chains. Mm -hmm. he, he should have been. You know, that's one of those that's one of those honor things where uh, there are so many reasons why Paul should have been ashamed of his chains. He should have been ashamed of being in prison because he's a citizen, for goodness sake. And he's mm -hmm. he's in he's in prison because he's obviously raised suspicions of Roman authorities and. And, and it was really perilous to be friends with someone in a prison because they might think, you know, well, you're you're maybe being seditious, too. You know, so that's why people in prison had a hard time getting outsiders to support them. You know, Roman prisons didn't come with prison issued uniforms and health care and food. You know, the only way you could survive prison is if you had someone on the outside that would take care of you. Mm -hmm. So Paul's got these people who are willing to risk their own welfare to be associated with him sending these letters. And he really should have been ashamed, but again, the reason he's not is because the cross has turned everything upside down. What is really a source of shame, like a Roman cross, for Paul became a badge of honor. It was supposed to be, you know, death for him was life. And uh, so um, I think it's interesting that he's using an, a, an honor technique, <laughs> boasting, to say, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the good news, even though the cross was a very shameful symbol right. and reality for the first century Roman world. In fact, it's my understanding we don't even find artwork by Christians of the cross until the fourth century. Exactly. Exactly right. They could not conceive Paul's world and especially the Christians, they could not conceive of the idea that we would use the cross as a piece of jewelry. Yeah. Or that we put it as a symbol on top of a building. Yeah. Well I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast. Right now we've got two guests here. Dr. Rodney Richard Reeves and Dr. Randy Richards. We got all the R's covered right here today. <laughs> but if you're listening next week, I hope we're going to have a show. I'm working on who's going to be the guest. Uh, Dr. Capes had uh, cancer for now. He's going to be on on October 3rd about his book, Slow to Judge. But now let's just get back to our show where we're talking about the book Rediscovering Paul. Now, one of my favorite editions I've heard of the reading of a letter. 
whereas Ben Witherington gave a talk, and in it he included a little bit on the letter to Philemon. And he pointed out this would be a letter that would be read to not just Philemon, not just Philemon would open up an envelope, oh, look, here's a letter from Paul, yeah, 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 oh, okay, got it. But this would be read to his whole household. And there is some, as we would say in today's culture, major burn going on on Paul's part to Philemon. And this was part of a letter writing. Wouldn't would you like to talk about that kind of thing going on? Yeah, I'll, let, uh, that, I'll, I'll let Rodney talk about the theology and the sociology of it. But, you know, people might think, well, why wouldn't uh, Philemon read it, you know, privately to himself first? Well, uh, in the ancient world, even if you read it yourself, you read it aloud. Right. It's hard for us to imagine that, but they would actually read the sounds and the sounds coming out their ear would hear, and that's how they would know what it said. Augustine was a bit shocked when he went and saw the Bishop Ambrose Milan reading and reading silently. Exactly. And any you, you know, even though it confuses us, Nick, it it's no mystery to any elementary school teacher because they spend several years teaching kids to read to themselves. And after you teach them to read to themselves, their lips will still move silently. And then, so then they have to put their little fingers, the teacher puts her fingers on the lips to get the, uh, the kid to quit moving his lips. So even if he stood there himself and read it, uh, people standing around him would hear and you say, well, who's standing around him? Well, you would never leave a wealthy philemon in a room by himself. What if he wanted a glass of water? What if he needed someone? So there would always be slaves standing around. There just was no such thing as privacy back then. As I think I mentioned in one of the other books, uh, in in one of the cultures I was working in, they didn't even have a word for privacy. It just didn't exist. And so um, for uh, Philemon, he would read that letter. His household would know about it because at least one slave would know it. And of course, if one knows, they all know. Uh, but what's interesting also is Paul mentions the letter when he writes to the Colossians, and that is to put pressure on Philemon to make sure that Philemon actually acts according to the letter. So Paul cranks the heat up on old Philemon. Yeah, and we tend to think of the letter, I've just got the text out right here just to remind myself, we tend to think of the letter as a personal letter. And it's true that most of the pronouns in here are, you know, second person singular, you, you, you. But remember, it's not just addressed to uh, Philemon, but it's also addressed to uh, Aphia and uh, Archippus. As, so they're, they're recipients of this letter, too, in verse 2. And he, he ends the letter, not with a singular pronoun, but a plural one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, plural pronoun. So there's 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 a rhetorical strategy going on here where Paul, Randy, exactly right. Paul is writing a letter to Philemon um, as a primary recipient, but he's got other people he's writing to, and he anticipates. This is fascinating to me that if you know that Philemon might be the one who reads it, we don't know. But this is fascinating. In Philemon's voice will be Paul's voice. As Paul <laughs> is in engineering a situation where in the world you'd have people who are, you know, you might say it might be too strong a word to say, but they're, you know, enemies, the runaway slave and his master in this horrible situation, right? 
And yet, Paul wants them to think of this not in terms of, uh, you know, slave and free, owner and master. He's trying to get them to see it through the lens of the fictive family, the church, where we're all brothers. And he's trying to help them. He's establishing the egalitarian reality of the church of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And to me, it's really one of his most brilliant letters. I mean, I, I love all the letters of Paul, but his deafness here and his... I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I compare him to a Jewish mother. You know, he he puts a lot of uh, emotional pressure on Philemon. You know, and I, you know, you owe me something, by the way. Don't forget. You know, it's like you owe me your very life, and I want you to do this for me. So he's he's one of those um, writers who 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 could who says this is what I could require. This is what I could do. I'm your apostle. He could do the hierarchy thing. You could you could obey me. You should obey. But instead, even Paul says, I'm going to do this like the church works in an egalitarian way. Mm-hmm. So he's modeling even what he wants Philemon to do is that is receive his runaway slave as a brother and forgive him. And that's that's an incredible uh, um, hope of Paul and a vision for Paul to, to, to really address this really significant social problem. Yeah, Ben Wivington. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Nick. It, uh, it's a high-stakes gamble for Paul as well, because when he writes the Colossian church, he puts them in a terrible spot, because Philemon is likely their benefactor, their father, in the sense that he is providing the resources for them. And yet Paul is claiming to be their spiritual father. And so if Philemon doesn't do what Paul asks, then the church is going to have to decide which father are they going to follow. Are they going to follow the money or are they going to follow the the gospel? So as Rodney says, this this whole dynamic with Philemon and Colossians is just really a masterpiece. And Paul is playing high stakes here. Is the church going to redefine the way they view the world? Yeah. And N.T. Wright, his, his work on Paul, we found it fascinating. It's a massive <laughs> you know, two, three-volume work, yeah, right? Yeah, it's about 1,700 pages, live yeah, reading in the evening. It, it's, it's, it was clever of, of Professor Wright to start with Philemon. That's where he starts. Hmm. So to to get into Paul's theology, because for Paul, you know, we tend to think of Paul, like you were saying earlier in the, in the podcast, Nick, how we tend to think of him as an intellectual who's simply working on his theological problems. For Paul, theology has to do with the way we live our life. Uh-huh. For him, the gospel is not just a set of propositions or a message to preach. It's the way we live. And so I think it was brilliant by Professor Wright to start with Philemon, because you've got a gospel on the ground that's addressing so many issues that the world has, uh, you know, is divided over. And Paul's basically levying the gospel to address this situation, which is nearly impossible, as a demonstration of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a brilliant move by Paul to, to uh, stick his nose in this guy's business, basically, <laughs> because yeah. he's this apostle, but yet he has a higher vision of what the church is supposed to look like. Yeah, Ben Witherington called it the Emancipation Proclamation of the New Testament. And it's definitely also, and I'm not sure which one of you wants to come on this, but it's a working piece of rhetoric, which was extremely important in the New Testament world to make a rhetorical approach. I mean, we often speak about rhetoric in negative terms. We just say, oh, it's just a bunch of rhetoric. But for them, rhetoric was everything. 
Yes, and of course, Professor Witherington has done a lot of work in this. He's got more skin in the game of seeing rhetorical devices in Paul's letters than other scholars. And honestly, Nick, that's even something that's been is still debated. To what extent is Paul truly relying upon, you might say, the rhetorical handbooks? And that even goes back to really raising the question, how Hellenized was Paul? Did he really receive a formal Greek training where rhetoric was taught? And But you're right, rhetoric was not just a matter of of uh, structuring an argument, rhetoric had to do with basically convincing other people that you're right. And there are persuasive techniques that the sophists, the wise guys, they taught because everyone wanted to have a voice beyond, you know, uh, maybe their own station in life. And so um, you've got rhetoric being taught as a way to have huge influence in your city and in your, uh, and, and therefore in. Uh, in your social group, the guild you belong to, and rhetoric was uh, does show up. I think it does show up. It shows up more clearly in certain places, like Romans. I think rhetoric shows up very clearly in Romans. And uh, there's some other evidence that rhetoric shows up, for example, in places like you know, Galatians and uh, Philemon. But rhetoric doesn't show up as, as a species of, of argument in 1 Corinthians. One Corinthians almost defies a rhetorical argument in certain places in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about the uh, letter writing of the ancient world as well, you did say as bad uh, when people gathered together to write letters, that it wasn't a private process. We get this picture sometimes of uh, Paul sitting down at his desk, just himself, and writing letters. But people have been constantly coming in, hearing what he was writing, and saying, hey, Paul, why don't you change this part here? Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, uh, I joke that that image, just about, you know, Paul sitting at his desk in a quiet little room in the evening, just everything about it is wrong. Uh, the ancient world didn't use desks. Uh, they, uh, they didn't write in private little rooms they were too small and they were too darn dark you couldn't see a thing you know they'd have one little tiny window if, if it had any window at all uh, and it would be uh, in the summer it'd be hot and in the winter it'd be smoky so you know they they uh, didn't stay in those back rooms they would sit if it was a, uh, a home like say of someone like Lydia they'd have this open air atrium in the middle where people would tend to gather in the uh, afternoon so Paul would be there. He would be speaking aloud to a secretary taking notes. So there is no private anything. Now, if he was in an apartment, he'd be on the balcony. So then you've got not only the uh, all the people around you, but also anybody who happens to be walking down the street wants to uh, yell up his opinion. <laughs> but in the ancient world, it would never occur to Paul to write something by himself. You know, in uh, – you know, when he'd go on a journey, he'd he'd take people with him. Just the ancient world always thought in terms of we, and so, uh, you know, the it would be considered probably sin to want to exclude your teammates from this project. They had a part in everything you were doing. So, you know, Paul would be talking. They say, well, "What about this?" And they'd you know maybe argue about it, you know. And secretary would be thinking, "Gee whiz, I could be writing a letter to some sailor's mom here," um, and so. Uh, but you know it would you know it get hammered out and uh, I think the older scribes used to call it in the crucible of ministry. Uh, these things would get hammered out. As Rodney said, it wasn't 
Paul saying, I'd like to tell people my theology. Paul was dealing with problems with life. How do we how do we live as Christ followers in the world? Yeah. Now, also with this uh, use of scribes and such, does this have any bearing on the question of are some of Paul's letters forgeries? Well, I mean, Barterman has made a case in his book Forge that some of these writings of Paul they couldn't have been by Paul because they're not written in a typical Pauline style. I mean, what what do you all think about that? Well, before well, Randy speaks, because he's the expert, but let me just let me just toot his horn. Randy years ago really put forward an argument that challenges a lot of this. Really, it's a 19th century approach mm-hmm. <laughs> to understanding authorship, and and it's informed by modernity. And Randy's put forward so many good arguments that challenges even the idea of how could you determine a stylist, you know, a Pauline style. I mean, for goodness' sake, Second Corinthians doesn't. Uh, measure up if we're going to argue on the basis of style. So, and what I what I don't understand is why the scholarly, although many many scholars who um, I think are a little more intellectually honest, have considered Randy's arguments and his his approach. The arguments he's been making is finally you know it's being heard by several scholars. But someone like Ehrman, um, I, I don't know. I don't understand why there are, there aren't more scholars who've engaged Randy's. Uh, study because to me of course friends but to me his his approach to this question is definitive okay dr richards uh thanks rodney if, if you look at uh, if you look at style uh, no two letters of paul are enough alike to meet any modern standard of style of, of just one person sitting down and writing a letter uh i think anthony kinney uh, an oxford scholar uh pointed out that two that are most alike are Philippians and Second Timothy. But they're not <laughs> enough. So uh, just modern style analysis is just not an acceptable standard for authenticity. But let me actually uh, do something that might surprise some of your uh, listeners. I think Bart is right in some areas. Now, his book Forged is pretty inflammatory and and a popularist thing, but he wrote a a major piece called Forgery, a very similar uh, title. And uh, one of the things he he does an excellent job of is demonstrating that the ancient world considered writing in someone else's name to be wrong. Uh, There was none of this idea that a disciple of Paul could write in Paul's name in order to honor Paul, which is the normal kind of argument you hear that that um, a disciple of Paul wrote Ephesians and he writes it in Paul's name because he wants to honor Paul and say these ideas really belong to Paul, that sort of thing. And Bart Ehrman does a great job of showing that uh, ancients considered that wrong. They use words like lies, forgery, bastard, please excuse uh, Mm -hmm. that language, and um, uh, theft. Uh, you know, all of the terms they use for referring to these writings are negative. There was no positive image of this. So uh, Bart is right in in his point that if a disciple wrote Ephesians, then it is a forgery. It's not the fancy term pseudonymous written innocently in the name of Paul. It would be a forgery. Now Bart and I will, Bart and I will disagree. He thinks some of them are. I think they aren't. And I've got, I think, good arguments for arguing that. 
Um, the ancient world had forgery, but people were always on the lookout for that. Uh, you know, ancients weren't naive. They're not dumb. They were, they're just as smart as we are, and they knew how to look for signs of forgery. It, it went on in the ancient world. Paul's sensitive to it as well. Um, so we're insulting ancient people if we think that uh, Ephesians fooled everybody for 1,900 years until some Englishman was able to figure this out. I, I think that's insulting to the ancient world. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast here, and everything we do is listener-supported. And, you know, when I'm thinking about the call of donations, I am thinking about what Dr. Reeve said earlier on the show, that technically we're all family. We're all part of the family of Christ. So when you're considering supporting us, kind of think of it, you're supporting the family, your family. Now, if you want to support work of Deeper Waters here, what you do is you go to deeperwaters.ddns.net and that's my website there and you see a link that says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries now you click on a link in there it takes you to a website of Risen Jesus have you gone to the right place? yes, yes you have my in-laws run that site and so you make a donation, and then you email or contact me or Debbie Lacona or Mike Lacona, one of us, and say, Hey, I made a donation, and I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that we get your donation, and your donation is tax deductible. And seeing as I'm working on a master's right now, your donations will be greatly helpful and appreciated. And if you can be monthly donors... That's even better. You can uh, buy books that we sell on Amazon, and I still need to do some work on that. The books that you hear on the podcast, and you can buy books that I've written or co-written on Amazon, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or God and Natural Disasters or A Creed for the Ages. And there's also something now you may not hear very listen to this one. Okay, support us via purchasing jewelry where you purchase through a link there and you give a co-world love to access the information of the site and then you make your purchase and when you're done making a purchase you contact me or Lena Clester who runs the premier jewelry section and said hey I made a purchase and I heard about this on Deeper Waters podcast so guys here you got your lady's uh, birthday coming up or anniversary coming up. You want to get something really nice. Get some fancy jewelry because we know women tend to love jewelry for some strange reason. And you know, maybe you might even get a little cross necklace which would have shocked the first world. <laughs> but you get some jewelry and you pay whatever you want to pay. You just let Lena or myself know about it. 25% of what you pay goes straight to deeper waters. Now, um, Dr. Richard, do you happen to have a, a, a charity or an organization you'd like to encourage people to donate to? Uh, Nick, I think if uh, people are uh, listening to and benefiting from your podcast, I'd like them to. I'd like to encourage them to support what you're doing. Thank you. Me guys. too. Me no. too. Okay, so I guess that you've answered that for me also, Dr. Reeves. Well, thanks, gentlemen, for that and. Yeah, they've, uh, they do have their own free will, too. I really thank you all for coming on as we are talking about this book. 
And, you know, some of you might be wondering, are you going to get into the meat of the letters themselves? And my thing on that is really not too much, really, because we want to understand Paul as a person. And, hey, you have to have some more reason to want to get this excellent book as well. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about Paul's message here. I, I know Dr. Capes isn't here, but you two can talk about this. When we talk about Paul preaching the gospel... What exactly are we talking about? Yeah, and even that word gospel, we tend to think of it as a Christian word or a, a theological word, right? But mm -hmm. the word gospel was a very political word. It was the word that Caesar used mm -hmm. to describe his agenda to rule the world. And so, um, therefore, I think it's fascinating that Paul, we might say, co-opted uh, language that was like from the political world, from the courts, from the marketplace. And he used all these terms to describe the kingdom of God, the work mm -hmm. of God through Jesus Christ for the benefit of Jew and Gentile, the whole world. And so for him, mm -hmm. I think, I read him, that the gospel is a person. Mm -hmm. The gospel is good news about a person, Jesus the Messiah who's the Son of God, who's made good on all the promises God has made to Israel. And what those promises mean are not just that God would make out of Abraham a nation, Israel, but God's promise to Abraham is that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And that the blessing of God that was made to Abraham comes through this one, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who fulfilled all the promises God made to Abraham and to Moses and to David, and to, through the prophets, and therefore, uh, this is the hope of the world, that the, what God has done through Jesus Christ is to bring deliverance, salvation to Jews first, and to the Gentiles. And Paul saw himself, therefore, as the apostle, uh, as the one who God would use to bring the Gentiles to Christ. So, for him, this is the good news, that God is out to save not only all humanity, but even God's out to restore all creation. So he has this cosmic view, even, that God, whatever God has made, whatever sin has touched, God is going to redeem and reclaim for himself. And um, so it, it has good news, when you think about it, is therefore eternal. There's no end to it, and there's no, there's no spatial end to it. It's uh, God is out to reclaim everything he's made through his son, Jesus Christ. Dr. Richards, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, we, we sometimes, Rodney and I will sometimes tell students that we have a tendency to read the New Testament backwards. We'll, we'll use the example of parables that Jesus would teach. He would take something uh, everyone knew, like farming, to explain something no one understood, the kingdom of God. So he would say, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out and did this. Well, everyone understood about how farming worked. They just didn't understand the kingdom. Well, uh, as Christians, 2,000 years later, we understand a lot about the kingdom. Uh, we don't understand jack about the first century world and how farming worked. And so often, to understand that parable, we have to go back and learn a little bit about farming in order to understand uh, the part that they already knew. And it's the same thing with Paul. Uh, Rodney mentioned that Paul uses words like justification, adoption. These were everyday words. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple days ago, I was reading the text of an inscription uh, they found dedicating a road. 
in the ancient world, sometimes a wealthy person would give a road to the city. And so this particular inscription talked about how uh, this benefactor had given a gift to the people of that town, a road. Well, the word for gift is a word that we come across. Uh, in the ancient world, patrons and clients was just the way the world worked. Uh, you, as if, if you're a baker, you would uh, connect yourself to someone wealthy in the city who would look after you. And so you would bake bread for him and for all of his family and all of his other clients and everyone. And he, he wouldn't let you charge too much for it, but he would make sure you got a fair price. And if you ran into any trouble with anyone in the city, he would be the one who would help you out. So if he would, like if your bakery burned down, as often happened in the ancient world, um, he would give you a gift, a loan to help re, uh, rebuild your bakery. He didn't have to give you this gift. It was uh, He was not obligated in any way. He would just give you this gift. But uh, gifts in the ancient world had strings attached. You would expect to be loyal or to be faithful to that patron after that, to speak well of them. Well, the word uh, for the gift was a word, uh, a very common word called charis, which we translate grace. And the word of, for being loyal or faithful uh, is the word pistis that we translate faith. So when Paul ties together grace and faith, he was tying together two words that were commonly put together. Mm -hmm. So he was using a relationship that everyone understood, a patron and a client, to explain a relationship they didn't understand, God working uh, to reconcile us through Jesus Christ. So they would take what everyone knew, patrons and clients, to explain what they didn't understand, but we often have to kind of read it backwards. 2,000 years later, we sort of understand how it works with Jesus Christ, but we don't understand anything about patron and client. So when I was growing up, the word grace and faith only had Christian meanings and tended to have whatever modern meaning I wanted to put on it. And so understanding the way the ancient world worked really helps us because Paul was using everyday words. You know, I'd like to touch on something that Dr. Reeves largely said, something that Dr. Richards added. I mean, Dr. Richards about Jesus Christ and Dr. Reeves about the importance of Jesus being the Messiah and such and how that was promised for Abraham. Scott McKnight has written a lot about this in the King Jesus Gospel that uh, we're usually in conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses to come to our door. They deny Jesus is fully God in the flesh and so we go out and battle with them because we have to show Jesus is fully God. That We don't mention many Christian groups that go around and say, yeah, Jesus is fully God but he's not the Messiah. And so we don't really spend as much time focusing on the messiahship of Jesus. But for Paul, it would have been absolutely essential. He, he could be, he would be shocked that we would not take that so seriously today. Why does Jesus being the messiah matter? Right, that's a good question, Nick. It sounds again very religious, doesn't it? Yeah. But in Paul's day, those were political claims. I mean. They, Think, why did they crucify Jesus? Because <laughs> he was making some significant political and theological claims. I love Pilate's question. You almost like you speak of a kingdom, you know. What does that mean? If you're going to go around claiming a kingdom, you have to have a king. <laughs> There's got to be a king to run a kingdom. 
and the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. It's from the Hebrew, Aramaic, and then Christ comes from the Greek, Christos. Both these words mean the same thing. Uh, and the anointed one, I mean, there were priests who were anointed, but the way they used it in Jewish literature was to anticipate the son of David that God had promised. They would build a temple and establish a kingdom that brought justice as the prophets predicted to all people, mm-hmm. especially to Israel. And so this king was to basically effect the reign of God when the presence of God, as the prophets predicted, would mean justice for the poorest of the poor. And it would mean um, mercy. And, and this, this kingdom would consist of the very presence of God. And God would rule through this kingdom from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And that was Paul's frame of reference. Of course, Jesus comes and basically presents himself as the one who will make this kingdom come true. However, the weapon that the king would use would not be the weapons of men. Rather than kill his enemies, God decides to send his son as a king who will die for his enemies. Why? Because the ultimate enemy of Israel wasn't Rome. The ultimate enemy of Israel and all humanity was death, sin and death. And so the way Paul sees it, this this King Jesus came to conquer the ultimate enemy against all humanity, and he did it through his sacrifice, the cross, uh, that brought reconciliation between us and God and us and, and, and each other. The church, get this, this is so po- important. We tend to think of justification reconciliation as only individual. And this is Scott McKnight's. His recent book, Fellowship of Difference, is brilliant on this point. He keeps talking about how it was God's intention to have a people, a people that would live out the kingdom to show the rest of the world this is what justice looks like. This is what mercy, as they, as Randy was saying, this is what grace is. And that we were to treat one another like this as a as a witness to the world of, of basically the kingdom of God. That the kingdom are a people as much as a as a place. And so Paul was convinced that this church that he was a, that he God used him to take to the Gentiles as well was an end time demonstration of the reign of God empowered by the Spirit, another gift of God that would the prophets predicted like Joel, it would prove that God's present, uh, that the end of the age has come. And so it's it's an it's uh, and it's an amazing idea that and I think maybe for Americans because we have you know we don't have kings. Right. You know we don't have royalty. We don't have thrones and and even for England and other places, it's more of a, uh, how would you describe the monarchy in England? <laughs> it, it's, it's more of a political... Traditional thing. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder, and so I've suggested my students, if we were to have this language, Jesus as president, <laughs> yeah. we might pick up on the politics of it. Of course, it might leave a bad taste in our mouth. But there you go. When Jesus comes into the world, he is here to deliver a kingdom as a king who will reign in a completely upside-down way that brings the justice and the mercy and the grace of God to the people who need it the most. And Paul was convinced that that's already happened in history and that it will eventually, history will catch up with the reality. And on the last day, God's kingdom will be fully present, something that we experience in part now. Dr. Richards, anything to add? Uh, no. Uh, you can see why uh, we wanted Rodney on the team. He just says yeah. those things so uh, very well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 
and I, I love the way Scott McKnight says it too, the good news of King Jesus. Well, that is just a modern translation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul talks about all the time. Paul talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's become so churchanized for us that when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't think, oh, the good news of King Jesus. But that's exactly what he's talking about. And Paul spends all of his time talking about church and people because, as Rodney said, um, the people are supposed to be the proof that the kingdom of God has come. That's exactly right. And maybe to throw in a word for David, that's what I love about, you know, David was the main editor of The Boy. And they kind of got in trouble a little bit because they dropped the word Christ. Because some people think Christ was Jesus' last name. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I've it's met really, that. It's a, it's a political title. And I love what the voice did as the, 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 the liberator, the, the liberator king. Mm -hmm. And um, and and that's really a truer translation of what Messiah slash Christ would have, would have meant then. And it's almost like we need to recover that sense that, you know, kings, kings deserve our life's devotion, mm -hmm. right? They're worthy to bend the knee and swear allegiance. Yeah. For, for our interest, David Capes has been on here before, and we were talking about his translation of a voice, so you can go back and check our archives, and you can find that. Let's talk a little bit about the political ramifications. One of the letters I will be going to for a little bit and talk about this is, I like to look at the letter of Philippians this way, because Paul is writing this from prison, and he would naturally be under prison due to Rome, wherever he was at, because there was some debate about where he was at. And so he's in the hot seat already, and he writes to Philippi, Philippi, which uh, is a Roman colony where everyone would have been seen as a Roman citizen. He says, you are citizens of a kingdom of God. And this is pretty much saying, hey, um, Caesar, in your face, we're taking over right now, and Jesus is challenging you. And that whole hymn in Philippians 2, that is a smack in the face of Caesar. Yeah, that's right. You know, and N.T. Wright's done a lot of work in this, and other scholars have, talking about the implications of Paul's gospel, that it wasn't just a message to get us to go to heaven when we die, that the resurrection mm -hmm. is a political statement. It is God reclaiming what humanity has basically mucked up, right? Mm -hmm. And so I love, I love the idea that here is a political prisoner of Rome <laughs> in chains declaring that his Lord Jesus reigns supreme. Oh, yeah. That, that there's so much that's dripping with irony that, that helps us see that the kingdom of God is not easily seen in human terms. You know, that's why Jesus goes, you know, do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see? Because the kingdom doesn't operate. The kingdom of God doesn't operate like the kingdom of men. You know, the kingdom of men operates with really an skewed sense of justice like Rome did. They claim justice for all. It, it, it operates with the sense of who's worthy and who's not. And But the kingdom of our Lord is completely subversive to that. And so scholars have pointed out, like you said, Nick, the subversive quality of the gospel that shows up in spades in his letter to the Philippians. Mm -hmm. and, he, and here it I is. Here it is, it, and the number one word he uses is joy, right? right? He's constantly saying, rejoice, rejoice, almost like he's trying to encourage them. <laughs> this yeah. man in prison who's convinced that he's living the life of Jesus because what happened to Jesus? He got in trouble with the Romans. What happened to him? 
And Paul goes, well, that's, you know, as he says, he who was equal with God, he emptied himself. And Paul says in Philippians 3, hey, that's happening to me. I've got all this stuff that I could claim the status, but I'm experiencing the gospel, this pattern of the good news of Jesus. And he's basically trying to encourage his converts. Look, rejoice, because this is the kingdom that matters. This mm-hmm. is the one that is eternal. This is the one that will take over the whole world, and evil is already lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick, one of the advantages of being 2,000 years later is, uh, you, you know, but people often think, oh, if I just lived in the first century, it would have been easier. No, it, it's easier now. You know, when Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. Well, it, it's a wonder people didn't just throw their hands up and walk off because it seemed very clear to them who inherited the earth. Mm-hmm. Roman soldiers are stomping all over the countryside. Well, you know, we know some of them did walk off. Well, yeah, well, they, they did. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the countryside's littered with grain silos that are full, but people are hungry because the, the grain in those silos belong to Caesar. And so um, it seemed to them the meek was not inheriting the earth. But now 2,000 years later, we can say, well, Rome actually didn't inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. It didn't come to anything. And so um, when Paul talks about how um, emptying ourselves is the way to exaltation, that Christ's kingdom is going to take over the earth, it ought to be easier for us to uh, believe that because we have seen – how the gospel is like yeast, like Jesus said. And we've seen examples in history where it has leavened the lump, where it has caused the dough to rise. And so um, we do see evidence. But as Rodney said, it's still turned uh, upside down, or God would say he's turned it right side up. Um, And if we can take just a second to uh, plug it, we talk about this stuff, I think, a little more clearly in in the next book, the Rediscovering Jesus that just came out. Yeah, and let's go to Rediscovering Jesus for just a little bit to show a contrast with Paul here. With uh, when you talk about Rediscovering Jesus, you talk about what if this gospel was the only gospel we had? What if these epistles were the only epistles we had? And what if the only version of Jesus we had was these versions of Jesus? Well, let's contrast this with Paul then, okay? Because we are talking so much about Rediscovering Paul. Let's suppose we lived in a world where Paul had never been. How do you think things would be different for us today? Oh, man, that's a question. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Uh, of course, we in, in the book we have, um, you know, we, we look at Mark's Jesus and Matthew, Luke, John. We look at right. Paul's Jesus, the Jesus of Hebrews, which is completely different. Than the he than in so many ways not completely but there's quite a bit of difference in the in the priestly Jesus of Hebrews the Jesus of the exiles and, and then the a, Jesus of Revelation oh my gosh the apocalypse <laughs> talk about and now for something completely different to throw in a Monty Python line um, yeah so what you're asking is is and it's hard Nick think yeah. about it. Paul has had such a huge influence on Western Christianity mm-hmm. and rightfully so. His impact is seen in so many ways. He he makes theological sense of the most important thing that happened in human history, mm-hmm. and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He helps us make theological sense. But what makes I think Paul even even more strategic for us is that he ta- he tells us how we're to experience that, and he's trying to get his converts to experience the cross 
and you know burial and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to say, okay, if we didn't have Paul, pull all of Pauline theology out of our heads in the West, right? Yeah. Let's let's pull out the language of the cross that's mm-hmm. so important for Paul. What does he say? I preach Christ and Him crucified. The language of Paul where he says. I know that the world sees the cross and the gospel's foolishness, but to me it's the wisdom and power of God. I mean, he, he did such a brilliant job of helping us Gentiles, first of all, believe that we belong as members of the family of God. He helped us see that we are brothers and sisters, regardless of ethnicity and gender and economic status. He's had such a profound influence on us. So you're really asking a tough question to say, okay, what if we only had Matthew's Jesus? What what would we what would we believe? And we try to do that in the book, don't we, Randy? Mm-hmm. Right. I I think is you know if, if we can take a little bit of a of a of a pious turn here, I think that um, there's a aspect to the gospel that comes from having an uneducated Galilean fisherman. You know, we as much as we like to raz. Peter, he's the only one who walked on water, you know. So I, I think there's just certain gifts that the church has gotten from having those kinds of disciples. But then you had someone like Stephen, who's well-educated, who actually understood the implications of the gospel. Uh, uh, Peter and John are still going to the temple to pray. Stephen understood that the gospel had implications for that. Stephen understood, and one other guy understood, this guy named Paul. And he helps oversee the, the martyrdom of Stephen because he understood the gospel of Jesus was going to change everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when uh, Jesus loses Stephen, he goes looking for someone else who understands what the unpacking of the gospel would look like. And he lays hold of Paul. Mm-hmm. He conscripts him. And so when we ask, you know what would Christianity look like without Paul? I think the Holy Spirit decided he didn't he didn't want that. He wanted Christianity unpacked, and so he went after Paul, someone who had the kind of education, the knowledge of the breadth and depth of Scripture, someone who could unpack the implications of the of the gospel. He he understood what happens when the right understanding of Torah, the right understanding of the prophets meets up with the realization that the promised one has come. When you put those together, you end up with an unpacking of the good news of King Jesus. Yeah, we could go even further though with not just Paul's impact on Christianity, Paul's impact on civilization altogether. Because if Paul had not gone out and reached the Gentiles, and he was a major one doing that, then Christianity could just largely remain a Jewish thing. For all we know, oh, that, and that, we went having, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Even though Paul fought against it, and I think in certain respects he's been misunderstood as trying to start a separate sect. He kept yeah. trying to get his Jewish brothers to welcome his Gentile converts, um, and but at the same time, I, you know, in the book we talk about if all we had was Matthew's Jesus, then we would probably be seen with more more. Uh, clearly as a sect within Judaism. Uh, but Paul's influence, because his gospel, we'll put it like this, his gospel was so welcomed and successful among Gentiles, uh, the Gentile influx into the church couldn't help begin to shift, you know, the 
the customs of the church and what they prize. And of course, there were problems. You know, you've got a bunch of Gentiles coming in with their pork eating habits. You know, and you've got <laughs> Jewish Jewish Christians who rightfully, Paul said, should keep the law, right? Because God gave the law to Israel. And yet, when they come to their fellowship dinner, their potluck supper, what happens then? What happens when? You know, the Gentiles bring their pork chops, and the Jews are offended by that. How do they learn to get along? And Paul was convinced that they should learn how to sacrifice to one another, like Romans 14 and 15. He lays it out beautifully of what it means to imitate Jesus, to sacrifice yourself for one another. Of all places, food should be the place you sacrifice. And But I think you're right, Nick. I think that if, if we didn't have Paul's influence, I don't think there would be as many Gentiles in the church. And um, ironically, I think we would be understood more as a Jewish sect with really more kind of Jewish uh, social benchmarks than, than we do now. Dr. Richards, anything you'd like to add, Vat? Oh, I can't hold a candle to the way Rodney explains the theology of Paul, so I'll just say amen. <laughs> well, I've been going out and buying the book Rediscovering Paul, which I encourage everyone to do. And I'll go ahead and tell you right now, just looking it up on Amazon. The paperback version is twenty ninety eight right now. The Kindle version is nine ninety nine. So if you want to get that now, that's a price. It's a pretty good deal as well. And it is certainly an excellent book. I mean, this is the go-to book I'd give someone to understanding Paul. But other than reading the book, I suppose after listening to the show, next time someone who's heard the show sits down there reading an epistle of Paul... What should they be thinking about as we're reading this epistle? I think, first of all, that Paul didn't write Galatians for you. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. We tend to be very uh, arrogant and say, here's, here's Galatians, mm -hmm. and it was written for me, a 21st century American. No, Paul wrote that first for Galatian Christians. And so I think there ought to be a little humility that, first of all, try to figure out you know who are the Galatians and what was what was the problem and and what is Paul trying to you know address and the second thing I would encourage your listeners to do is try to put on Galatian ears or put on Corinthian ears and see what was at stake the second thing I would encourage them to do is read the whole thing we tend to jump in in the middle of a letter and and feel like we can understand a verse or two when the truth of the matter is these letters are arguments they're very lengthy. Some of them are pretty lengthy arguments. And Paul builds momentum, one argument upon the other. And you will just learn so much more about, say, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, if you spend time understanding the significance of what Paul gave up, you might say, in Galatians 1, and the, and the compromise he tries to reach uh, over the table in Galatians 2. So those would be my two bits of advice. Randy, what would you add? Oh, goodness, I'm just sitting here basking in that. Um, I, I do, uh, I, I would agree with Rodney that we have to remember that we're reading someone else's mail, that uh, Paul wrote this first to someone else. But then with the humility to realize that because it's God's word, it applies to me today. So I don't open it up and say, uh, God's, you know, that this means to me. No, it meant to them. You know, mm -hmm. so, you know, first thing we do is we look for what did it mean to them? And then how does that apply in my life today? Because I think it does apply. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a it, it takes a little bit of work. All great things take a little bit of work. Mm-hmm. But we'd also encourage people. Christians have been doing this for two thousand years. Lives have been changed by it. Um, my life was changed. So was Rodney's. Mm-hmm. Your life would be yeah. changed by uh, reading this. Um, it is truly the good news of King Jesus. And isn't it amazing how Paul is still our apostle? We're yeah. Gentiles. He's our apostle. Mm-hmm. And so he has a mm-hmm. he, he should hold a special place as well uh, in our hearts as he point he says, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Yeah. And so we're following the Lord, but we he can Paul can help us learn what it means as a Gentile to uh, live as a member of the body of Christ. And I, I just marvel about that, that this man still has great influence because he was something he was doing something more than some social engineering, trying to get people to get along. He was doing the work of God. And like Randy said, this is still the work of God. This is still the word of God. And the spirit Paul counted on to use to apply to our lives even to this day. Yeah, I find it interesting that some people have described American thinking as we read the Gospels as if they're chips and dips preparing us for the main course that takes place in Paul. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't, we, we, don't, we, we don't think so. Rediscovering Jesus was yeah. really a great experience for us just to do that, to see Paul as one voice. Mm-hmm. But boy, there are other equally important voices of who Jesus is in the New Testament. Yeah. And, and Nick, there's always uh, more to learn. You oh, know, yeah. someone. You know, if you've read Galatians, it's not like, well, I've read that now. I don't need to read it again. Uh, Rodney and David and I are constantly returning to these letters to see what else we can learn. In fact, we're uh, hoping uh, in the spring to begin the process of doing a a major rewrite of Rediscovering uh, Paul, uh, a second edition, because we're learning new things and and benefiting in new ways from the study of Paul mm-hmm. and, uh, and and of scholars who are writing about Paul. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to thank you all for both coming on, and we are going to be working on having you all come on again soon, hopefully next month, to talk about Rediscovering Jesus, which I, I think you all are a little bit interested in talking about that book. I don't know, because I, I'm watching on Skype, folks, you can't see it, but as soon as I mentioned talking about it, some, the, thing, the thumbs up just came up immediately from both of these guys here. Let's <laughs> um, um, uh, start uh, wrapping things up here. Uh, Dr. Reeves, do you have a, a website or blog or way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Uh, Nick, I'm a horrible blogger. I mean, I do have a blog. It's on uh, the WordPress, A Genuine Faith. Mm-hmm. I don't post as often as I should. Um, but if they wanted to get in touch with me, they could go to the, the university website where I teach, Southwest Baptist University, sbuniv.edu, mm-hmm. and they could find my email, and I'd be happy to try to talk with them. I've had some former students who have developed a, pod, a podcast, um, and they it's the Dr. Rodney Reese podcast. It's on iTunes, and it's places where I've spoken in conferences and even preaching you know, sermons that I've preached, and they've downloaded audio versions of that so I mean there's there, there are sources out there as well um, but but most of all uh, I, I I would hope that your your listeners would pray mm-hmm. pray for us because and we'll you know we'll pray for you Nick and thank you because we're in this together this oh, yeah. is a kingdom that's much bigger than any of us and we we didn't invent this thing the kingdom was handed to us by those who were faithful before and so we're trying to be faithful together to him. 
And so this is a sacred, um, this is a sacred work that we're doing, and we would very much appreciate the prayers of people mm-hmm. who follow Jesus. And uh, you have any final message you'd like to leave with the audience today? Um, I I have a blog, Randolph Richards, R A N D O L P H, RandolphRichards.com, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I'm no better blogger than uh, Rodney, but you know I I try to put a few uh, thoughts down there, and and they can contact me through the blog. Um, if they mention that they heard us on your podcast, we'll uh, try to particularly respond. Uh, we do. We're very grateful for the invitation. Thanks, Nick. No problem. Do any of you two have any final comments you'd like to make about rediscovering Paul or anything like that? Well, we're just, you know, I wish David could be be could have been, you know, a part of our conversation. He he brings such depth to understanding Paul's theology. Um, David is a brilliant scholar. His his work has been read across. Um, you know, really not only in the United States, but international scholars have appreciated David's work. David has done some key work in understanding how Paul basically used language that was basically attributed to God, that Paul used that language to describe Jesus. And David's had a huge influence on scholars like, you know, Richard Bauckham, who's done Ooh. some and Larry Hurtado. Nice. I mean, Philip Essler. Philip Essler in his book on Romans and Community and Conflict, and you'll read the introduction, says, you know, David Capes, you know, there's a lot of talk about monotheism, early Christological, high Christology, and he says, you know, Bauckham, of course, has written on this and Hurtado, but Essler says David Capes was the first. Mm-hmm. So uh, to put this on the map theologically and academically. So David is a, he's a, He's a gentleman too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's such a good guy, and I wish you could hear from him. But I know you've got him, you know, on this on this his most recent book, and I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. Right. And, and, and he's far more experienced on uh, radio and podcasts, so he'd be more articulate than us as well. <laughs> well, it was a great interview, guys. I want to thank both of you for coming on, and I'd like to remind everyone that next week, well, we were going to have David Capes, but that's kind of falling through. He's going to be back on on October third. I've got someone in mind for a show. I'm not going to say who right now, but I've got someone in mind. If it doesn't work out, well, we'll see what happens. For now, I am Nick Peters, though, and I am signing off.